Welcome to the Bluegrass Podcast. Thank you for stopping by. Today we're talking with Sweetleaf Joe of the Sweetleaf Collective, advocate, activist, and free weed angel to those in need. We're talking about nonprofit cannabis protections, putting cannabis directly into the hands of patients, and how to keep cannabis compassionate. I always like to start at the beginning. How do you get introduced to cannabis in the first place? Well, I started smoking in high school. And at that time, I had a lot of social anxiety. And when I smoked, it was helping me medically with mental health stuff. And I was able to sort of get over my social anxiety and start interacting with other people and not, you know, always second guessing myself. And it was a real changing time and turning point in my life. Um, Yeah, I never, never went back after that. I, I really fell in love with this plant. And was it right out of high school that you wanted to get more involved with it? Or was there a point at which your personal love for it became, I want to be around this 24-7 all the time? Well, once I graduated high school, I started doing activism. And it was with Food Not Bombs and helping homeless people basically doing free meals. And I was also selling a little bit of weed on the side. Cannabis was a big part of my life, but it wasn't until 1996 when I was 20 and Proposition 215 passed in California, making medical cannabis legal that was my first time really getting into the cannabis advocacy movement. Honestly, at that time, I I thought there was no chance that that law, that bill would be voted in. So when it was, I was quite taken aback. And because I was already doing activism and I knew how cannabis helped me medically, it was kind of a a no brainer. It was a really small step to take to, to join those two parts of my life. And how did you do that? What was it that you found that you could bring those two together in? Oh, well, I started thinking about how there were terminally ill patients that were low income that could greatly benefit from the use of medical cannabis, but they were not able to afford it. And so it started really small. We got donated leaf and we would make butter out of it and then make edibles and bike deliver those edibles to about five patients in San Francisco. So it started really small humble origins. And it was basically, I was 
taking the model of food not bombs, which is taking surplus from an industry and identifying who needs it most and helping those people access it. And that would be for my listeners that aren't aware of it and don't know yet. Is that what would become the Sweet Leaf Collective? Yes, we started it. We started it in 1996 and we called it the Sweet Leaf Collective. And like I mentioned, you know, I have a love for this plant. And in high school, when I was smoking, I really liked Black Sabbath. And I loved the song Sweet Leaf because it's basically a love song to the cannabis plant. So when we started the project, I already knew what to call it. I was like, where this is, this is Sweet Leaf. And at that time, you know, everything was organized as collectives. So we were the, the Sweet Leaf Collective. And what was it like at the beginning, kind of like you're talking about? Did you all have this idea that you wanted to grow this into something larger? Or was it just day by day, this thing evolved into what it is now? Yeah, it just evolved in a sort of natural progression. The way that Food Not Bombs works is it's all volunteer run. And we had a same sort of model. So it was just friends coming together who wanted to make the world a better place through creating more access for cannabis. And it was, you know, almost like a club or something. You know, it wasn't, we didn't have hours. We didn't have, you know, specific times people needed to show up. It was very done or very organically. And it was, you know, I mean, I was 20 years old, so I, I had no real thoughts of the future or where it was going to go. Also, something to take into consideration is at that time period, we weren't sure if we were going to be able to keep medical cannabis. The federal government was really coming down hard on people. And at that time period, the government was trying to, well, the federal government was trying to take away the licenses of doctors that were recommending cannabis for their patients. And that case eventually went to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court ruled on the side of the doctor saying that it was a free speech protection and a right of free speech for doctors to be able to talk to their patients about a medicine that might help them, even if that medicine is considered federally illegal. And you started out in activism. You've maintained your activism for, what, three going on four decades now? How have you kept that energy up? Because I think that it's rarer than maybe we would like it to be, but people who have started and stayed with helping people the entire time instead of transitioning out? You know, that's a really good question. And it's really interesting because I might have answered it differently a few years back. See, now I'm curious what the answer you would have given then is and what the answer you would have given now is. Well, what I would have given before is that 
for some reason, I, I always wanted to make the world a better place and ease human suffering. And sort of play it like, oh, I'm, I'm this good guy. But these days, I think it was due in part to my struggles with mental health. And I'm someone who suffers from pretty heavy depression, even though a lot of people don't see it. And feelings of low self-worth. And so I've always kind of been an overactive overachiever. And I didn't really understand why that was. And I really think that it's linked to my mental health. And so as much as I would like to claim credit for this and say, oh, I'm just this great guy who was really forward thinking, um, you know, it's it's because I needed something that the patients were giving me just like they needed something that I was giving them. And that's, that's something I've, I've done over the years is with the patients when they're thanking me for everything that I've done to help them with their cannabis access, I turn around and tell them, thank you as well, because they're giving me something that I cannot buy. They're giving me something that I can't get anywhere else, really. And that's a meaning for my existence. And there's, you know, Robin Williams quote about how people who suffer from heavy depression know what it, what it means to feel really worthless. And we don't want other people to feel that way. And so a lot of times we'll go above and beyond to help others because we know how much that help, the, the level of impact that that help has for people. And we know it from a, a personal experience. Well, I'll definitely say, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but you definitely have worth and thank you for what you do. But if you're talking about patients as well, would you like to highlight some of those? Maybe talk about some of the people you've been able to interact with and while they've helped you, you've helped them. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, Ed Gallagher is one of our patients. Um, he's been in a bunch of articles, so I'm not breaking HIPAA. By talking about him, he's already he's already come forth as sort of a public figure for compassion patients and health equity. But Ed is a is a great example of a compassion patient. He is low income. He is a senior. He is a veteran. He is blind. And he is almost completely deaf. He also has had HIV for decades and a few years back was diagnosed with cancer. So Ed 
was one of the patients that we were bringing to Sacramento during our fight to protect the cannabis nonprofit sector in 2018 and 2019. During that time period, Prop 64 had not made a distinction between commercial and non-commercial cannabis. And what that meant is that free medical cannabis to patients was now taxed by the state. So we fought for two years. We got a new law passed in California that saved and protected the cannabis nonprofit sector. And Ed was going to the committee hearings with the state assembly and the state senate and giving testimony about how important this medicine has been in his life. And he he's just a great guy. He's really funny. I love hanging out with him. He... He's just such a character and it's an honor to be able to, to help people like this. And he's been a sweet leaf patient for, I want to say at least 15 years. And so in that time we've gotten him, God, probably at this point, like 20 pounds of free cannabis during the whole time that he's been with us. And he's another one of these people who, you know, he's just super appreciative of it. He knows the impact that it has. He was willing to become a public figure to help save other people in a similar position as himself. Because it's a lot to ask someone who has HIV and cancer, who is blind to come to Sacramento from San Francisco and regularly meet with politicians to petition their compassion. And I really think that he, he swayed a lot of politicians when they saw what this was all about, when they saw that Ed was someone at that time period who'd been coming to us for years already. This is something that he was used to. These patients were getting free medical cannabis for decades. And then all of a sudden, we had to limit how much cannabis we could get our patients based on the fundraising that we could do to pay the state taxes on that cannabis that they were receiving. And again, this is a really interesting time period to think about because I have never heard of philanthropy being taxed. Whenever people donate or do something to help other people, help the environment, animals, all of that, people get tax write-offs. They're encouraged to do it. They don't have to pay the state taxes to do that. So this was a very unique situation that really called for our attention. So you were kind of talking about how Ed really helped them understand what they were doing, getting that law changed. Did you run into resistance beforehand where maybe they were more 
hesitant to allow you to do this or what was the barrier to just them getting on board? Because it seems very common sense. It does. It seems very common sense, you would think. And there was some resistance, especially with Republicans, because Republicans were doing sort of a knee-jerk reaction. When they hear cannabis, they say no. And what changed with that was two veterans' compassion programs. called One was called Weed for Warriors, and the other is Operation EVAC. And especially Sean Kiernan and Weed for Warriors, he really organized a lot of veterans to go into the Republican offices in Sacramento. And they'd go in there with a video camera and talk about the bill that we wanted to pass. And the way they presented it to the Republicans is they said, yeah, we're we're making a documentary to show who's in support of veterans. And once the Republicans started to realize that this was a veterans access issue, they really started to change their tune. And we were really lucky to have this broad coalition from all different sides of the political arena that we were all working towards the same goal. When we got that bill through the state assembly and the state Senate, it had an almost 90% yes vote, which is pretty insane. And because it was dealing with taxes, we needed a supermajority vote, which is a 67% yes vote. You can't get that sort of vote without bipartisan support. And we had, clearly we had overwhelming bipartisan support and it was from this very diverse coalition you talking about this veteran documentary and what they did that is probably one of the best ideas i've ever heard for how to in as friendly a way as possible twist politicians arm oh god yeah so there was a politician who had never voted yes on a cannabis bill. He was a Republican. He voted yes on this bill. And that, that to me shows the change in 20 years with cannabis. Just that we, we have this ability now to talk about it and people understand, especially politicians, that it's, it, it has medical value. And when we start talking about the medical value with veterans, it reduces their symptoms of PTSD and it lowers their suicide rate because the military and the veterans have one of the highest suicide rates of any career path, of any occupation. And what we see is the traditional medical establishment giving these veterans a bunch of opiates where they keep bumping them up on the opiates and then we see a lot of opiate opiate sorry opioid death from overdose and it's really a tragedy in the veteran community and cannabis is helping 
these veterans reclaim their lives and rejoin society. So the tax law is an area that you had to overcome in the past, and that was an obstacle before. Are there any obstacles that you're looking at now or things that you would like to change that would make it easier for you to do this or ways in which medical patients could be more supported in this model? Because I know that like with the work you do, it's so important because people don't even have access to traditional help like insurance and healthcare. With cannabis, you're almost always paying out of pocket as a patient. Yeah, well, I mean, I would love to see insurance companies covering medical cannabis. That would be great. It might get into a weird zone there where if the pharmaceutical companies get involved too, it might start muddying the waters. One of our biggest issues has always been funding. So, you know, I really wish there was uh, an angel investor out there that would love to bankroll the project. That would be great. Um, with the law that we passed, it it does have a five-year expiration. So that's going to be coming up in the next couple of years. And we're going to want to try to pass a more permanent law to protect the cannabis nonprofit sector in in perpetuity and for for generations to come. But yeah, I mean the other thing too is I would like to see a similar law passed in other states like Colorado and Washington where their cannabis nonprofit sectors disappeared with legalization. And that was becoming a nationwide trend, which is another reason why it was so important for us to fight this, especially in California, which is the the birthplace of legalized cannabis and Dennis Perone being the father of the legalized cannabis industry. And we knew we had to fight because if California didn't fight, and we saw the same thing that happened in Washington and Colorado, that was going to be what was going to happen for the whole country for federal legalization. Now, since we got that law passed, there are senators in Washington, D.C. talking about creating nonprofit protections for cannabis nonprofits once federal legalization happens. So it's interesting to see how a uh, how the work of a small handful of activists and patients and advocates changed the way the country is looking at cannabis nonprofits and the cannabis nonprofit sector. And that's really one of the big things that I've been working on the past few years is how do we establish a cohesive nonprofit sector in the cannabis industry? Because we're basically building it from scratch. And in trying to build this in other states, why do you think possibly you all were able to get this law passed and or changed and move forward with this when other states weren't able to or haven't yet? I think I really think it's the history here. 
We have a lot of history of activism and advocacy for the cannabis plant. We were the first state to do legalized medical cannabis in 1996. We've had it here for over 25 years. Now, add into that that Sweetleaf is California's oldest cannabis brand. We've been doing this since 1996. And it's a different model than other states, than Colorado, than Washington. Their oldest brands are not a cannabis nonprofit. Their history is they got medical because California got medical. Whereas California got medical because Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary were giving away free medical cannabis to AIDS patients in the 80s when there were no medicines that were helping these patients. Cannabis was the only medicine helping them at all. And they fought and Brownie Mary was jailed on multiple occasions. And the police told her they really wanted her to stop doing it because it was really making them look bad. This was getting into the news. And Brownie Mary looked at them and she was like, I will not stop as long as these patients need this medicine. And so what happened was that the city and county of San Francisco passed a local ordinance making medical cannabis legal. This was in the early 90s. Then a few years after that, Dennis Perone helped co-author Proposition 215. Now, the name of Proposition 215 was the Compassionate Use Act. It was in the name. The cannabis nonprofit sector is what created legal medical cannabis. And back then, you know, it wasn't really a sector. It wasn't really nonprofits. It was activists going out there and getting the job done. And during this time period with all the news about Brownie Mary, people in the suburbs and people in other states were starting to hear that there was a medicine that helped AIDS patients and that this medicine was cannabis and maybe cannabis might have some medical value. And because of Brownie Mary's activism and being willing to go to jail for the patients that she knew needed this medicine, the whole world has changed. And we're seeing medical, not only in the majority of the states in this country, but we're starting to see it in other countries. And this was all because of a handful of activists in San Francisco. So we have, we are steeped in tradition. Now, not only this, Sweetleaf, we work with low-income terminally ill patients in San Francisco. Some of our patients used to work with Dennis. We followed directly in the footsteps of Dennis Perone and Brownie Mary. And we're continuing to carry that flame and carry that torch that they lit. And it's an honor to be of service. And it's an honor to be part of this legacy because it's a multi-generational legacy that has had a global impact. But really what it comes down to is just 
a few stoners helping out people who were really, really suffering and who had no other options. And just some stoner activists that are like, well, this, this medicine has been helping me. It can help other people too. And I'm willing to cross a line. I'm willing to do something that the government tells me is illegal because I know it has to happen because I believe in it because these patients need us and the government didn't have any answers. And so if we came up with some answers and they didn't like what we came up with, well, we can see through history that we didn't listen to them and now looking at history, it kind of seems like we were the ones who were correct. And for people who don't know, Dennis Perone might be a little bit more known to my listeners just because of the legal activism side. But could you talk about Brownie Mary a little bit and who that was? You talked about what she did, but people might not know her who might be my listeners. Yeah, well... Dennis definitely was a lot more out there and on the cover of High Times a bunch. Brownie Mary was an elderly woman. She looked like a grandma. She had gray hair. And she would take her social security checks and buy a bunch of flour for baking. And she would make a bunch of brownies. And... This is what she was famous for. She would go into San Francisco General Hospital, where she was a volunteer in the AIDS unit, and she would give the patients free brownies. And the anecdotal feedback that she got from that was how much it was helping those patients. A lot of these patients were dying from wasting syndrome, and that just means that they, they couldn't eat. They had zero appetite. And the brown the brownies gave them munchies. And so she saw these patients, which she called her kids. She kind of felt like a mother to all of these really sick people. And she saw them starting to eat. She saw them starting to put weight on. And to me, she she's a, a cannabis saint. She knew what she was doing was illegal and she didn't care because she saw the impact. It's where we started to get the medical necessity defense from. And that defense is used in court still to this day, where if there is a substance that is helping a patient and there's no, no other medicine available that will help them, if that substance is illegal, that patient is still allowed to use it because they are so sick. And her using the medical necessity defense really started to change the way people thought about things. That this wasn't just somebody, you know, these patients getting high, it's helping them medically. And now this person is using this as a defense in court and they are winning. So I think it really started the wheels turning in people's heads where they were like, 
they, they started to realize that it was a medicine and Brownie Mary, I mean, you know, she just had an incredibly big heart. She wanted to ease human suffering. She, she was there in the eighties in San Francisco when the AIDS epidemic was literally just killing so many people in the LGBTQ community. Like it was, it was horrible. The stories that I've heard, I was still a kid at that time, but my friends who are older and in the queer community told me how, you know, they lost like half of their friends. They were going to funerals like every other day. It was like a war zone, like an active war zone where bombs are dropping every day and, and people are dying left and right. And at that time too, they weren't even sure exactly where it was coming from. They weren't sure what was happening. AIDS is a really, a really different type of disease because it attacks the immune system. So then it manifests in a whole bunch of different ways. So it's hard to tell that, oh, this, this person who's sick in this one way and this other person who's sick in a completely different way, it's actually the same sickness. So there's someone at home, maybe for someone's in a circle, smoking pot. They hear you talking about this. They say, I want to make a collective. I want to do what Joe and his group of activists are doing. What are some steps that you would say they need to take or how should they engage if they want that nonprofit in their state, if they want this option? Well, definitely to start, it's good to just start as like an activist organization and making connections with cultivators. That's where we would get all of our donations from. And also connecting with dispensaries because they are a place where the patients come in. And there's different regulations around all of this in every state. So some places are more, it's easier to do something like this. Like say, for example, in California, six, seven years ago, so under Proposition 215, anybody could do this. A cultivator could donate a pound to someone. They package it up into eighths, and then they can just go and deliver it to the patients, provided that the patients are part of their network and have signed the proper paperwork, basically saying that it's a co-op or a collective. The, the thing with the collective model is that it was a legal defense as well. So when we were pre-Proposition 64 and pre-recreational legalization, we cultivators would donate to us. We would just package it up and bike deliver it to our patients' homes. And there was no real regulation of that. Now, everything we do is in metric. 
we are not, we don't have a cannabis permit because there's not a nonprofit cannabis permit. And so we work with multiple partners all up and down the supply chain from seed and cultivator all the way down to the dispensaries. And we get it out that way. I'm not sure if that answers your question. Sorry, I feel like I kind of had a brain fart there for a second. No, you completely answered it. And it actually kind of makes me think, have you all, and this is strange, but have you all had new opposition arise or have you been able, like you said, you have to renew this. Are there still people trying to make this more difficult? I don't think so. I think we've laid the foundation in California that it's it's going to be political suicide to oppose this. Especially when we have bipartisan support. We have the democratic side that supports, you know, LGBTQ community, POC, low income, terminally ill. And then we have on the Republican side, we have the veterans and we've laid the framework where it will look very bad politically for these type of politicians to oppose us. Oh, and, and I do remember where I brain farted a minute ago and you were asking about um, like how to do this. So with the, the collective model, that's really interesting is when all the patients are signed on, you have contracts where they acknowledge that they're a part of a collective. Now, when I have a hundred patients, I am legally allowed to carry cannabis for a hundred people. So the medical limit has always been a half a pound. So if it was just me, I could have a half a pound, but if I'm working on behalf of 100 patients, that's where we could go up to Mendocino County, for example, up to Circadian Farms, one of our big donors, and we could pick up 50 pounds legally, and we could drive it down to the bay. So that's another interesting thing with the collective model and the co-op model is that you have sick people who cannot do this for themselves. They need someone else to do it. and the co-op and collective model is an insurance policy. What can happen is if somebody starts a group like this, if they do get into legal trouble for transporting some cannabis around, those patients that they're transporting it for can come to their court case. They can represent on behalf of the defendant and talk about how that was actually their cannabis and that they're terminally ill and that their health has suffered due to the withholding of this cannabis by law enforcement. And so when we start putting a face onto things, it becomes much more defendable and it becomes less where the judicial system thinks that this is some sort of loophole that we've discovered to be stoners and they start to realize that it's something that's literally saving people's lives every day. 
What you said about being able to show up to people's court dates and about putting a face on these things, I think is probably the best thing I've heard and the best thing I hear repeatedly. The more you can humanize this, the more people care. Yeah. And that's the thing with this is we're talking about compassion, like a basic human emotion, compassionate cannabis. This is cannabis for people who really need it. And when I say really need it, when I used to do deliveries to our AIDS patients in San Francisco, countless times I have showed up at a patient's house where they are in tears. And through their tears, they tell me that they would have already passed on. They would have already died if not for the free cannabis that came from Sweetleaf Collective. And it's moments like that. And, and like I said, this has happened to me a bunch of times with a bunch of different patients. Like this is real shit, pardon my French. But this is saving lives and this is putting that human face on it. When 2018, our bill got vetoed, 2019, a bunch of programs closed. And I have friends who worked in some of these programs where some of their patients died because they did not have access anymore to free medical cannabis and they could not afford it. And they died. There is a human toll to keeping cannabis away from those who need it most. And that's where I get on my little activist soapbox where, where, when I hear things like that, it makes me so mad. And all I want to do is fight. And that's another thing. When Prop 64 passed, we fought. Like we have that tradition here. We are fighters for this plant. And we weren't going to go down without swinging. So I love what you said about getting angry about it because you're someone that has translated that into action. And oftentimes I think people miss that step. If someone's, if you had a magic wand, let's say, and you could say, this is the way I want to do it. What is the way, what are the things that you would change? Let's say that would make it easier for you and make it easier for patients to just get the medication just to get access well i mean the top on the list is descheduling it taking it on the having the federal government stop listing it as a harmful drug an illegal harmful drug getting insurance companies to pay for it getting more research done on it we need more research on Rick Simpson oil. There's people that were given that I've talked to that were given a 10 day diagnosis that they were going to be dead in a week and a half. And they immediately got on Simpson oil. And since they've been five years cancer free and the doctors cannot explain it, we might have a cure for cancer. Like this plant is so incredible with its medical properties. And we are only just scratching the surface. But creating more access, Berkeley 
The city of Berkeley passed a local ordinance years ago mandating that dispensaries donate a certain percentage of their profits to compassion. That's something that would be great to be done on a state or federal level. So that basically, if people are making money off cannabis, they need to be funneling some of that money back to those who can't afford it. Those who might die if they don't have access to it. Honestly, there's, what... there's a whole bunch, whole bunch of different things that, that could be done. But I feel like those, those are probably the big ones. I was going to say that last thing you said, I would love to just see that go for the entire pharmaceutical and healthcare industry. I'm like, that's great. We should expand that idea. Yeah. What's well, the problem with us activists? We got lots of great ideas and just not much, not many resources, you know, I'm like, I don't know how we've kept this thing going for so long. It's, it really is a, a life calling. All right. So the last question I have for you is, say that we have a Californian listener. How do they find you? How do how would they find out more about Sweet Leaf, get in touch with you all, try to become a patient if they need it? Well, our patients are... Just in the Bay Area, but we do have connections with a bunch of other programs statewide. You can find us on Instagram under Sweet Leaf Patients. I think we've been a little shadow banned. This is our second account. They shut us down at 4,000 followers. You can also find us on Facebook at Sweet Leaf Collective, on LinkedIn, Sweet Leaf Collective. And you can always check out our website, sweetleafcollective.org. If you want to get a hold of us, you can follow the little form on there, put in your information, and we'll get back to you. Um, yeah. And before I let you go, is there anything that you would like to say? Tell my listeners, inform people about, raise awareness on? Yeah. So everyone can be an activist. We all have this feeling in our heart when we see other people struggling. It's called compassion. And if that compassion can be turned into action... Lives can be saved and never underestimate the power of what one person can do. I never would have thought that a handful of rough and tumble activists could change California law. I never would have bet on that. But we did. And it took a lot of work. And it was hard and none of us got paid for it. But that work has directly impacted thousands of Californians. And in the next 10 years, I'd like to see it impact millions of Californians. And so never, never get disheartened. I know life can be hard. 
And let me tell you, depression totally sucks. And it would be easy for me to stay in bed all day. But get out and do something. The biggest thing I think we need right now in the world is kindness to strangers. And that's what Sweet Leaf is all about. All of our patients, we didn't know them before they became patients. Just make the world a better place and follow your heart. Joe, thank you so much for educating my listeners today. And please keep doing what you're doing. Don't stop. Never stop. Never quit. (laughs) What you do matters. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's crazy to look back now. And I mean, I never thought this was going to be my career. Now I'm pushing 50. <laughs> Still doing the same thing. <laughs> That's terrific. Honestly, I kind of hope I'm going to be in the same place. We'll see. And it, it just I- takes a whole bunch of work. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you're a bluegrass country or singer-songwriter, send in your submissions. We feature one song per episode and would love to play yours. Also, did you know that our store is up and available? Grab a set of our new bluegrass banjo stickers, die-cut and made of long-lasting vinyl, so that you can help put the grass back in the bluegrass. Available on bluegrasscannabis.com. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we are at bluegrass underscore cannabis on Instagram, at bluegrass hemp on Facebook, at bluegrass cannabis on TikTok, and at bluegrass canna on Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe and never miss an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. We're available on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and more. Thank you so much for listening and stopping by the Bluegrass Podcast. Old-fashioned, all-natural, Kentucky Bluegrass.